Welcome everyone to another episode of Life Chat with Griffinville. Today is a great day. We just found out that they passed that law, right, Vilma, about Juneteenth? Oh, yes. That is yeah. exciting. Yeah, definitely. So this is a new year, a new season, new beginning for people fought for generations to come. But that's not what we're going to talk about this week. We're going to talk no, about talking about what? That's not what we're talking about. No, I just had to. That popped in my head, so I had to say something real quick. <laughs> Man, I I thought we were going to talk about Juneteenth. Okay, all right. Mm. Let's shift gears. Yes, we have to shift and rewind back to what we're really going to talk about today, and it's always a pleasure to have Dr. Davis with us, Renee Davis, and she is no stranger to our podcast. I'm sure for those people who watch all the time, you know that she's been on numerous times and we're so excited, excited to have her on once again to talk to us about um, mental health and faith. Now, Vilma, being that um, this is your beautiful daughter, so let's go for it. Continue to introduce her and do what you do. Okay, so I am going to allow her to introduce herself so she may be able to give more information that I can. And yes, she's my daughter and my only daughter. And I am extremely proud to be her mother. So, uh, Dr. Davis, I'm going to have you to introduce yourself and tell our audience what you do. Well, thank you. It is a pleasure to be back again on the podcast and especially with the topic that we'll be focused on for today. My name is Renee Davis. I am a licensed clinical psychologist. I practice in Maryland. I have the privilege of being within two different practices. One is a more traditional secular practice and the other is a Bible-based counseling center. So I have different perspectives on offering mental health uh, in the field and outside of just operating in that field of psychology. I uh, have the joy of um, just being able to um, engage with my church and being able to be a part of different ministries there as well. Very good, very good. And my first question that I was going to ask you as a spin-off from what you just said, I think you kind of gave us the answer. I wanted to know, Dr. Davis, does your treatment approach differ according to the practice environment that you are in? Does it differ the traditional versus the faith-based practice? And how does it differ? Yes, it, it definitely does. So I intentionally wanted to work at two different practices after becoming licensed, starting off in private practice. I wanted to be able to be in a setting where I could reach any and everybody that came. And being that I am a woman of faith, a Christian, I also wanted to be in an environment where people were coming because of the biblical services that were offered. And so that alone kind of gives you an idea of the fact that 
it does differ depending on the environment that I'm in. When I am in the more traditional secular environment, uh, what we focus on it tends to be more uh, quite clinical. Uh, and I just use that as an opportunity to get a better understanding of the presenting issues. I try to come up with a treatment plan that fits what that client has come in and we kind of go about and make progress in that particular way. Uh, I'm more so kind of focused just on, you know, again, the presenting symptoms or what the diagnostic impressions are. When I am in the biblically based counseling center and offering services in that environment, I not only focus on the clinical side, but depending on the person that I'm working with, I definitely like to incorporate their faith as well. And so that would involve having an understanding of where they are in their walk with God, having an understanding of how they rely on God when it comes to being able to cope with the issue that they face, and also being able to find ways of giving them even greater resources within that biblical conversation. Wonderful, wonderful. Okay. I, I was getting ready to say that it is so refreshing when I hear of a Christian psychologist because in everything and that we do, you know, our faith needs to factor in it. And the fact that you can awkwardly say that you, your faith impacts your, your treatment plan is, is really very, um, heartwarming to me. Now, what are the groups of, of, of patients that you treat or clients that you treat? So I primarily work with children, adolescents, and their families. Okay. So I'm going to ask you, and you don't have to say it if you don't want to, but of the three groups that you treat, which is the most challenging and why? So I would say that working, well, let me back up. I have worked with children and adolescents throughout my training, as well as as an independent practitioner. That is the basis of what I know. I am just getting into the point of venturing out into working with like young adults and older adults, but that's been the primary population that I've worked with. When I am working with children that do not want therapy, <laughs> that is a challenge because they're there because their parents want them to be there. Mm -hmm. And it is excellent that their parent wants them to be there, but there are sometimes cases in which a parent may want them to be quote unquote fixed. And so they drop them off and they want to pick them up and have a new child that behaves and meets all the expectations. <laughs> And I am not a magician. And so those are the cases that I find to be quite difficult because you end up working with a kid who's not understanding why they're there. They're there on their own. And if I'm honest, when we look at children, there's so much more than just a child. There's the environment that impacts them. And so mm -hmm. that's why I often have a preference for working with the family working with at least one parent when I'm working with the child so that they both can learn because mm -hmm. when there are behavioral issues, yes, the child plays a role, but there are other factors to consider as well. 
So what do you do when you, you sit in a situation with a kid where they don't want to be there, they don't know why they're there? And what do you do? Like, what's the thing that help you to bring them along or to turn them over or whatever it may be? What do you do in that situation? Yes. So what I try to focus on is just building a rapport. Sometimes a parent may be so focused on, you know, like, let's get them fixed. Let's, you know, work on their behavior. Let's work on this sadness that I'm seeing or this anxiety that I'm seeing. But if a child isn't ready or there's no rapport, there's no trust, they're not going to work on anything. And so my number one goal, if I notice that they're not engaged, is how can I build a rapport? How can we talk about what's interesting to them? Can we play some games to be able to build this relationship and this sense of trust? And then I also try to invite the parent into the process as well. Why did you bring your child here? What do you see? What are your observations? A lot of times there are conversations that happen within the treatment room that haven't happened between that parent and child outside. And so mm. creating that space where they can have these conversations and that's when we can really get to the good stuff. Great, that, that sounds like a safe environment, you know, providing a safe environment. Ah, that I, I, I love that. I love that. Now, tell me, and from a general factor, did your practice grow during COVID? Yes. So one thing that anybody who has sought services during this time knows is that there have been numerous wait lists. That means that there have been an influx of people who have sought services, have sought mental health services mm -hmm. during this time. I have seen growth in the number of clients that I've seen. And I've also seen colleagues that have seen tremendous growth with regards to the number of clients that they've seen because there have been so many more people who are seeking help. And I will say, I, although COVID has played a factor, as far as just how to deal with uh, the impact. I also think that people have had time, those who spent a lot of time at home or spent time you know, seeing their child or seeing their teenager, have had times to make observations to say, this is an issue where maybe mm. they weren't necessarily observing it before. Mm -hmm. And I think that that also contributes to the increase in people seeking help. That's good. Yeah, that's a very good point. Very good point. So what are some of the psychological impact that you see um, resulting from COVID-19? So what I've seen is definitely an increase in anxiety. I've seen those who have experienced anxiety returning to school. I have seen those who have experienced uh, challenges, just dealing with the virtual environment. A lot of kids who were at home had significant difficulties. Those who already may have had diagnoses like attention deficit hyperactivity disorder or ADHD had a lot of trouble having to have that inner motivation to get work done. You know, being in that virtual environment, 
you are the one that has to submit the assignments and you are the one that has to keep up with everything in the classroom. You're the one that has to sign on to the computer and actually pay attention. And even if a parent is right there, they have no idea that their kid is like, has like eight other tabs open. <laughs> so there certainly has been the impact within um, the school environment, more so academic functioning. There's been an impact on social functioning where kids haven't seen their friends in several months, where kids are nervous to interact again, but not so much um, as, a, as a concern of getting COVID, but more so just forgetting the social functioning, the uh, what's needed in order to have an interaction with another person. They've mm -hmm. just seen their family. And so now all of a sudden having to meet up with friends again, they're hesitant. There's been a lot of mm -hmm. social anxiety. Mm -hmm. uh, and there, there has also been symptoms of depression as well. For those who have been isolated, have spent more time in their room. Uh, so I've definitely seen quite a bit. Interesting. You know, it just occurred to me as you were talking um, do you think it had a greater impact on children with autism versus other, you know, psychological um, diagnoses or disorders? Yes. That's an interesting question. So when you think about autism, there's a spectrum. So it's more officially called autism spectrum disorder. And there are those who are high functioning versus those who are maybe uh, lower functioning. And I would say for those who are used to being in an environment where there's a lot of support, along with an autism spectrum diagnosis, there's often an IEP or an individualized education program. And that just means that they have a teacher's aid or they may have certain accommodations within the school setting. When all of a sudden you're at home, you're in that virtual environment, as much as you should continue having those accommodations, it was just quite difficult for teachers to make sure mm -hmm. that the same support or the same level of support was there. And so there were cases in which, especially if a parent could not be there or they're working at the same time, where those who did have diagnoses like uh, autism probably suffered a bit more. Mm -hmm. So how long, so those individuals that, um, you know, what, what is the, the dynamic here? Like, do you see an increase more in the people who are trying to get back to, to get um, back into social aspect? Or you see more with the anxiety? Or do you see more with the depression? Like what, do you know, like a percentage range of what, you know, because of this whole pandemic, um, the increase or you don't know the percentage of, you know, is it anxiety, social issues? You know, what's the percentage that you're thinking that's going on right now? Mm -hmm. So it would be hard to identify exact percentages of diagnoses right now, whether it's anxiety or depression or trauma or behavioral issues. What I can say is sometimes they can be interrelated. 
So when it comes to experiencing anxiety, now I am coming out of COVID, I am going back to school, I'm a part of a hybrid environment, or maybe my mom is just pushing me out the door and she wants me to see my friends. Now I'm starting to feel this anxiety in meeting up with friends that I've only talked to on social media or through video gaming this whole time. And now I'm having to talk to them in person. So I'm anxious about that. And now because I've been anxious about it and my anxiety has been prolonged and every time I'm in a public environment, I experience that anxiety. Now I just want to isolate and I just want to be in my room and as we know, being in your room, being isolated over a long period of time will lead to symptoms of depression. So sometimes they can all be related and, and therefore it's hard to say exact percentages of what has risen. But I will say, I, I would probably guess that there's been an increase across the board. And I like the way you break that down because yeah, of how it leads into that because some people don't think about it that way that it can lead from one to the other to get to that next level. But yeah, I like the way you broke that down. Okay, um, Dr. Davis, another question that I have. If a client, you know, tells you or reveals that they're Christian faith, how do you incorporate faith with your treatment plan? Right, so I would say that when it comes to incorporating a client's faith, it is important. One of the things that we learn about in school is this idea of cultural competency, which means that I have to consider the cultural components that this client is coming in with. Now, because I am a Christian and I work in a biblically-based counseling center for part of the time, it is easier for me to make sure that I acknowledge those who come in and say, I want faith-based counseling. I want to be able to talk about scripture. I wanna be able to talk about my relationship with God, my relationship with the church. And so I often try to get a gauge of where they're at, uh, as I mentioned towards the beginning. Sometimes people are in different walks with their faith. Sometimes people are uh, distant, feeling distant from God because of their challenges that they've experienced. Sometimes people mm -hmm. want to have coping mechanisms that are biblically based that they can uh, use, especially when it comes to scriptures and prayers. So I try to find out where they are and then from there try to incorporate uh, ways in which they can use their faith as a support system or as a resource because yes, we can pray and always wanting us to pray, but I think that there are also certain nuances that we probably overlook as far as how you can specifically incorporate your faith into coping with your mental health. Good, good. That's, that's great, that's great. Um, now, if an individual identifies that they need help, um, what are the steps that they should follow? Yeah, so I think I always praise anyone who says, you know what? 
I, I've thought about it and I'm just not in a good place and I would like to seek professional help. I always praise that because it's a hard decision to make and it does require a, a, a level of self-reflection to get to that space. So I would say some of the first steps to take one could be to talk to your primary care physician to see if they have any referrals of people that they know that you can work with. You can contact your insurance company to get a, a list of providers that your insurance covers if you have mental health benefits. You can also go to psychologytoday.com, which is an amazing resource. You simply type in um, any type of filters that you would want. So if you want somebody who shares your faith, if you want somebody who works with kids, if you want somebody who does online counseling, if you want somebody that works with specific techniques like cognitive behavioral therapy, you can literally type in whatever you're looking for and then a list of providers will pop up. And then what you can do is take advantage of a free consultation. A lot of practices offer like a 15-minute consultation call where you can talk to them. You can get a better understanding of the services that they provide. You can tell them a little bit about yourself and then from there decide, is this a good fit? Do I want to schedule an intake appointment and mm. move forward? And what I will say, one other thing is that sometimes we do have that first or second appointment and we decide that this is not a good fit for me, but that doesn't mean that counseling isn't a good fit for you, just maybe the provider isn't a good fit for you. Mm -hmm. And so from there, I would look and um, go back to that list of referrals and see if you can find somebody else. But what about those individuals who think they don't need counseling and especially for anxiety, um, that's something that um, probably more you can see that that person has an anxiety issue. But when it comes to like certain depression or whatever it may be, what certain symptoms or what certain things that you could say, hey, you know, if you're going through this, you may want to seek counsel. If you're finding this, you may want to seek counsel. What are these things or signs or whatever that you can maybe just share with our audience to let them know that maybe something that you should think about you know, are things that we don't think of of saying, hey, we might need counseling, but then you know, like you think about this, oh, okay, counseling can help me, you know? Right, so one of the ways that I like to answer this question is to start off by saying, nothing has to be wrong to seek a counselor. You can be feeling great and go and see a counselor. Everybody can benefit to some degree. Sometimes there's a stigma that, I have to have the worst problems in the world or I have to really be suffering or I'm not crazy. Why would I go see a professional? But you do not have to fall into a particular category in order to seek counseling. So that being said, I would also say what I also look for is functioning across different areas of your life. How has that changed? How has your social functioning changed? Are you no longer hanging out with people? Are you no longer answering calls? Are you trying to isolate yourself? I look at uh, functioning on the job or functioning within the school environment. Has that changed significantly? Is it a lot harder before maybe you were readily going to work every day and everything was fine and now all of a sudden you dread having to get up in the mornings? I look at appetite and sleep, certain bodily functions. Have you stopped eating or are you overeating? Uh, how, are you having difficulty sleeping at night? Do you notice that you're awakening multiple times 
times through the night. Those could all be signs and indicators. And then when it comes to those around you, those who have made observations and noticed things, sometimes we can be a little offended. Like this person told me that they think that I'm anxious all the time, or they think that there's that I may be depressed. And initially we may be offended, but to take a second look, and if, especially if that person really cares about you, not being offended by it, but deciding maybe they are seeing something that I'm not aware of and maybe it's something to look into. Yeah, because I had a friend that I remember one um, <laughs> about 15 years ago, a friend said to me, I don't remember, I was going through some stuff and she said to me, um, are you going through a, um, oppression? She said, I'm like, oppression? What are you talking about? And she's like, well, I think you might be going through a little sign of oppression. <laughs> That's what she said. And, and then you're right. People might not, you might not think there's something going on, but the things that you say can able to give off another, you know, someone who's seen it a different way. So, mm -hmm. yeah. I was just asking her to sign me up, um, Vivian. <laughs> <laughs> hey, me too, right? <laughs> so, like I get up on a Monday and I was like, oh, it's Monday. I have to go to work. <laughs> I think that's a, well, well, you know, I'm not a doctor, but I think that's a norm for all of us. <laughs> It, it definitely can be. You know, there there are what they call those Monday blues, right? Where it's harder to get up in the morning. Uh, but what I do pay attention to is if there's just that sense of dread. Like, it's not just getting up early in the morning or getting up on a Monday and starting a new week, but I'm dreading this. Like, I don't want to do this. And that feeling stays for a long time. It may be okay if it lasts for a day or two, but if it's weeks on end, I would want to look into that. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. No, I, I just thought of this, this question as you were speaking again. Do psychologists get counseling? You know, you have people day after day and weeks upon weeks and they pour their, their, what they're going through onto you and you listen for hours on end on what is happening in people's lives. How do you keep your sanity? <laughs> mm -hmm. Apart from coming home and getting a, a good meal. How do you keep <laughs> your sanity? That's a good question. Yes, psychologists do seek therapists themselves and, and are often in therapy. It can be a weight to be in this job and to hear all that you hear and to uh, have to provide that support day after day. And as you pointed out, having to pour out can be a lot. And so, yes, there are those who have a therapist. There are those who um, consult with others. So it may look a little different. Some people work individually with a particular person. For me, what I find to be very helpful at one of the practices that I work at, we meet every two weeks as a group. And that is our space 
to just talk about what we're dealing with. We get an opportunity to talk about difficult clients that we've been working with. We get an opportunity to say, you know what, <laughs> this was hard, or I am being challenged in this way, or I had this particular reaction in the room. Don't think that, you know, that the psychologist is always coming and no matter what you throw at them, uh, they can handle everything. Of course, you want them to be competent, but there are some things that may throw us off at times. And that's when it's good to be in an environment where either you're seeking therapy individually or working with a group. So I have the opportunity to do that. And that has been a blessing for me, for sure. Great, great. And, and I guess you're, I was going to say, thank you for being transparent, but then you're a psychologist. So you tend to be more transparent because that's what you want your, your clients or your patients to be, correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Vulnerability is key. Okay. Well, what about those um, people who, you know, you're talking about faith and um, is it a situation where you, you know, I don't know what you do, basically the difference with the faith practice versus then people who are non-faith, um, but do you, is it like you take the Bible and the Bible is the center when it comes to the faith-based clients? Or is it whatever they're believing or whatever their faith is, you work around that? So it can look like that where you mainly focus on scripture. A lot of times though, what you're looking at is their walk with God. What is the work that God is doing in their lives? One of the things that I've learned, which I have truly appreciated is that every person is on a walk with their faith and with God and God is obviously at work within them. And so it's my job to partner with that work and not necessarily to create a work of my own. And so sometimes it may be bringing up a particular scripture that comes to mind, or sometimes it may be ending a session in prayer. And sometimes it may be, you know what, we're not gonna bring up any type of scriptures because we definitely don't want it to be forced, but we can talk about you know, experiences that you've had in the church that weren't um, of benefit or felt like they caused a lot of harm to you. Mm -hmm. We can talk about, you know, I, I have had these past experiences and now I'm dealing with condemnation and guilt. And so I try to figure out, you know, as they're talking and as they explain a little bit more about where they are in their faith, seeing and praying because I'm often praying in myself <laughs> okay God what are you doing in this person and what do they need to hear from me and just seeking mm -hmm. God on what to say how to say and when to say it that's good that's good that's good to know because you'll be you know especially being that your person be able to apply that but I'm sure you probably you know I don't know well I have two questions here I don't know if you see I'm maybe putting you on spot but I don't know if you see it any different with the ones who are Christian versus the ones who are not and see the recovery period or the transition? Do you know, you know the difference that you see in those particular individuals? I would say, honestly, sometimes it can be quite similar. So really? okay. that there would be a huge difference, but sometimes the issues, the concerns can be 
quite similar. Sometimes it can just be a matter of the level of openness somebody has to change. So I can be a Christian who believes in God and that's where my faith is. And yet I'm not ready to change or it's going to take a time, a certain amount of time for me to get to that point. And so, yes, it it can be quite similar across the practices. Mm -hmm. Good, good. So what general advice would you give to individuals as they emerge from COVID? So I think it that everybody is at a different point in their journey. Some who are completely ready to just be out there and they are, you know, 2019 prior to all of this starting and that's okay. And some are taking uh, very slow steps and that's okay too. I would say that you have to kind of check in with yourself to see where where am I at? What am I comfortable doing? Who am I comfortable interacting with? Where am I comfortable going? And then I would also ask why. So sometimes we get so used to not being in certain environments. Those who they've gotten so used to not being in school that they say they don't want to go to school because of concerns about COVID. But is it that or have I become so comfortable in the home environment that I'm just not ready? And so I would want to know where you're at, kind of like doing that introspection. Where am I at? What am I ready for? And why am I at this point? to decipher and to discern, is this just avoidance or is this simply, you know, I'm not ready. That being said, even for those who have friends or relatives that may be at a different place than you are, that's okay. I would say to have patience. Some people are going to be, you know, in a store and I see it every day. Some people are continuing to wear masks and some people are not. And and it's not on us to decide where you need to be. It's on you to know where you are. That being said, I would also acknowledge that there is going to be anxiety because there's change. And with every significant change that we experience, we often have that worry or that anticipation of the unknown. I don't know what it's going to be like Mm -hmm. when I return to these settings. And that is normal. That's okay. I would definitely validate that. And as we recognize that worry or that anxiety that comes up, also no allow i should say not allowing it to drive you and make all these decisions for you so feelings can be an indicator of something but we definitely don't want it to be the ultimate decision maker in everything that we do well said well said i couldn't have said that better myself <laughs> <laughs> do you have any more any additional questions for dr davis no um you know, I did put one of them left, but I have this one now. Now, we're talking about um, COVID and faith. And um, a lot of individuals right now are going out and they're vaccinating and they're going out now. Um, Is there any caution that you may have for people who are doing this transition right now of going out now? transitioning to interacting with people you know I know you just said what you just said a while ago but is there any caution that you may have for those individuals of saying okay don't go too fast I don't know what you would say but what would you caution them from doing 
you know, are taking it on so much because I know a lot of people now is on the road. The traffic jam is crazy. <laughs> so what would you say to these individuals that's, you know, going into this transition? Right. Yeah. So I, again, I would say everybody's kind of uh, moving at their own pace. I wouldn't necessarily, you know, um, I don't know that I would say that you can or cannot do anything in particular. I would just say to, to continue to do that check-in with yourself and just where am I at? It's been a couple weeks now since I have made this particular decision. How am I doing with that? Again, you know, with these changes, it's just important to know where we are. And I think that we probably don't do that enough. We're just used to go, go, go. Like, this is what I need to do next. This is where I need to be. This is what people are telling me. But we don't check in to say, okay, how do I feel about that? You know, as, as kids, especially towards the end of the school year, as they were returning and being in person, where am I at? How am I doing with this? How am I doing with seeing certain uh, students? I know for many of the clients that I saw, even though they returned to the building, there weren't a lot of other students that returned with them. And there were those who initially returned and then decided that they wanted to be virtual again. So now they're like, well, now I'm in this classroom and there's only one or two other students. How do you feel about that? How do, how do you anticipate the fall being when now all of a sudden even more restrictions will be li uh, lifted and perhaps the student population will increase that's actually in the building? So ask yourself those questions, check in with yourself, see if you're at the right pace or if it needs to change. Okay. Okay. Do you have Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I said, how can they get in touch with you if they're um, looking to, because I love some of the things that you said, you know, so how, if someone like me want to get in touch with you, how can we get in touch with you if you want to join your practice? Being that, I know you're in Maryland, but still. Right. So the best way would be to uh, actually go on to psychologytoday.com, uh, which I had mentioned earlier. That's the best way to get in contact with me, just to be able to look up my name on there. I am practicing in Maryland. And so that's where you will see me. And that is, um, that will offer my, um, offer an email address, it's not my direct one, but it will offer an email that will get to me directly. And then it also has a phone number that you can call that will also get to me directly. And that's the best way to come into contact um, with me if you would like to. Mm -hmm. All right. This sounds good. I don't. I I don't have any additional questions. How about you? Me, Selby. Yes. Oh <laughs> no! I just I'm always happy to have Dr. Davis on and talking about various things. Um, do you see an increase in children with suicides also around this time? So uh, I, again, I can't necessarily point to exact numbers, but I will say, unfortunately, I have seen um, or heard about uh, more cases of suicide, especially for those in high school. And so, you know, that's why mental health is just so, so important to be aware of and to be having these conversations about because you just never know how somebody is doing. Right. You never know the weight of their world that they're walking in. And 
if it has to start with a really awkward conversation where you don't feel like you have the words to say, it's okay. Make it an awkward conversation rather than no conversation at all. Mm. Because we all need each other. We all need to be checking in with each other. And you know, go ahead. I, I was gonna say, what signs should the parents look for when it comes to, you know, they see that their children have an issue when it comes to suicide? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so sometimes you may just see a, a change in their behavior. You know, you may see a, a lack of motivation. You may see uh, before they were getting like really good grades and now they don't care anymore. You may see some of that apathy. You may see that they are spending large amounts of time in their room. You may see that they're sleeping quite a bit. Their uh, appetite has changed quite a bit. Those aren't, that's not to say, you know, if you see those things that your kid, you know, has suicidal ideation, but those may be some signs to look out for, to have a conversation with them. And yes, they're going to be resistant and they're not going to want to talk to their parent about how they feel. And that's okay. You're still going to have the conversation anyway, or you can offer to say, you know, if you don't want to talk to me, I would be happy to work with somebody and get you an appointment so that you can have a space, a safe space to talk um, to someone or even talking to your counselor at school. Mm-hmm. You know, there's one takeaway that I, I, I get, well, there are many, but one in particular that I just want to um, emphasize is the fact that of how we tend to ignore people or we tend to stay in our little silos and we don't reach forward. We may see somebody, we may see them acting differently, but we have this attitude, I'm not gonna interfere. I don't know them. I don't want to talk. And sometimes, you know, if we just start, as you you mentioned, uh, start a conversation, say hello. Sometimes you, you, you say hi to somebody and they start to tell you, you sometimes you're like, oh my gosh, I probably shouldn't have said <laughs> But they need, people need people. We were created to be relational. Absolutely. You know, God, when he created Adam and Eve, he created them for a relationship. And when he went and he didn't find them, he, he says, you know, Adam, where are you? You know, he wanted that relationship. And yes, I know the biblical implication that, you know, he had sinned, et cetera, et cetera. But the person says, where are you? And I think God missed that relationship that he had with Adam. And from then we see him trying to bring different um, substitution in place to get back that relationship with us. Finally, when it came to, because everybody, nobody was able to do that except Jesus Christ. So I really do think I don't like when people say I can function by myself. I don't need anybody. I just think that's a deception from the enemy. We need each other. Mm-hmm. And absolutely, absolutely. And they say no man is an island, mm-hmm. you know. So I, I love that you are saying that is to look, reach out to somebody 
I've noticed like there are sometimes students and they're loners. They stay by themselves. They go to lunch. Nobody talks to them when, when you know, pre-COVID, nobody talks to them. They, they, they're recessed, they're playing by themselves because we have all these little clicks and we do it too with adults. Mm -hmm. It just takes one person to say, you know what, let's invite them over to join us, you know, to make them feel like they belong or they are a part of the group. Mm -hmm. I, I really do um, thank you for pointing that out. So what's your wrap up, your last takeaway you wanna give to all of us if you haven't said it yet? <laughs> Yes, well, I, I emphasize that point that you just made, the fact that we need each other. And even if you are seeing somebody and it seems like they've got it, they're, they're so independent, they can handle everything, it doesn't necessarily mean that they are doing okay. And so my final takeaway would be to reach out to someone, reach out to someone, even if you talk to them every day, if you haven't had one of those in-depth conversations in a while, have that conversation. It all starts with a conversation. Sometimes the people that I see, the reason why they're in my office is because they had a conversation with somebody and that's what led them there. So you have no idea the impact that you can have on somebody else's life simply by reaching out to talk. So I would highlight that. And I would also say thank you again for having me on. Thank you for highlighting this important topic and just the importance of our mental health. I think that it is so significant to be able to be on any platform and just to provide that extra support and that encouragement for others who need it. So thank you. You are welcome. You're welcome. And um, Vivian, I'm just going to remind our audience that we are now doing our podcast twice a month. So if, you, if there is a week you go on and the material looks like it was a week old, yes, that is correct. We didn't forget to post it. So twice a week. And for those of you who may have forgotten, you can catch us on Live Chat with Vivian Bill. That's our Facebook um, name. Uh, or you can email us, livechatvivianbill at gmail.com. We are on we have a website, livechatwithvivanville.com. We, we have a YouTube channel, and we are on Vital GH Radio seven days a week. And we also are on multiple podcast platforms, iTunes, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, you name it, we're there. And share, share, share. Like, like, like. Thank you. Subscribe. <laughs> <And> subscribe. That's what I'm saying. Subscribe. Yes, yes, yes. Well, thank you, Dr. Davis, for being on once again. This has always been a pleasure. And this is my chat with Rhythm Bill. Bye. Bye.